Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie. This week, I am joined by Michael Childs, geography teacher, head of department, and senior leader with responsibility for teaching and learning. But first, this episode of Becoming Educated has been supported by UpLearn. UpLearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools improve student grades and helps reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Art Schools, use UpLearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flip learning tool. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote Becoming Educated for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot uk Michael Childs is now a head of department at a school in the northwest of England and is the author of The Sweet Spot, Explaining and Modelling with Precision, his third book, which we will explore in this episode. We discuss the following and much, much more. What teachers should consider when designing their classroom layout. What we should consider when setting our wall displays as paying attention is a critical cog to enable learning. Why are PowerPoints, the staple of our lessons, creates cognitive overload. The importance of classroom culture. Why it is important to prepare for and be precise with our explanations. I absolutely love this discussion and I know you will get a lot out of it. So grab a pen, the dog lead or a cup of coffee as we dive right into my discussion with Michael Childs. Michael, thank you so much for coming back on Becoming Educated for a second appearance. I'm absolutely delighted to speak with you again. Um, The last time we spoke, as we just discussed, was way back in November 2020 when we discussed the craft of assessment. But since then, you've published two further books, um, The Feedback Pendulum and The Sweet Spot. And today I would really like to pick your brains on The Sweet Spot, explaining and modelling with precision, because there's so much in there that teachers could really benefit from knowing about and learning. But before we do that, can I, can I ask you what you've been up to since the, the last time we spoke? Yeah, so as you, as you said, I've been writing, well, written the feedback pendulum, I've done the sweet spot, and um, when we first spoke back in 2020, I'd just started at a new school. So I've been there now for, well, this is coming up to the second academic year as we get to uh, the end of July. And then it's just really been discussing the, the books and, and doing uh, several talks and, and training sessions. So it's been, it's been a busy year, year and a half since we last spoke and got a couple of new books on the go at the minute. So it's all, it's all keeping, me, um, keeping me busy every week. Certainly, I've seen your teasers on on Twitter. You're you're currently writing a book about questioning. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. It's a new new book on questioning, and then um, David Goodwin and I have just signed a contract to do um, a book together, which is quite exciting. The plan is for that book to be out in July because um, there's a certain there's a certain market that we're we're targeting this book to. So that might might give a clue as to um, what it, what it might be about. Oh, that's brilliant. That's so exciting. I love the the work that David has done with Oliver Caviglioli. So it's another exciting partnership for David with um, collaborating with yourself, Michael. So I really look forward to that. And I really look forward to reading the book on question because it's something that all teachers wrestle with trying to improve all the time. So it'll be very beneficial. So today, however, I'd like to explore the sweet spot, um, explaining and modeling with precision. The book in the sweet spot, it begins with this idea of the streamlined classroom. So can we begin by asking you, what should teachers consider when planning their classroom layout? Yeah, so I think I felt this was really important to start with in the book because our our classroom environments are things that we we don't always take into consideration. And um, it's something that we 
especially if we're a classroom teacher without any additional responsibilities. We might be teaching in the in the same the same room or multiple rooms, maybe five, six times a day, um, and a couple of days during the week, and then four times depending on the timetable. So I thought it was really important that this how we look at our our environment and I broke it down into sort of different elements so like the classroom um, was one that I sort of wanted to explore a little bit further and I suppose one of the reasons why I wanted to look at it and look at the research is because it's something that I hadn't necessarily considered in my own classroom initially and when I looked into it I started to think actually some of the things that I'd read around the research was actually things that I'd probably encountered in my own classroom without really realising. So I wanted to look at it in a bit more detail. And one of the things that I wrote about as well was that sometimes in classroom layouts, we may not have necessarily the control that we want to have as a teacher because classroom walls and, and the way that the school has been built is, is out of our control. But what can we do to try and mitigate against what some of the research uh, suggests? So what what can we do with that classroom layout? How, how would you recommend that teachers think about that in terms of where they position themselves when they speak and, and where the children are all facing? So the research suggests that rows is probably the most effective layout in a classroom. But what I would say is that that doesn't mean that every teacher, every school has to have rows and that's the only way to to do your classroom layout and that's something that I I talk about in the book as well I don't say like one size fits all in terms of layout but when you read the research the idea being that when you've got rows everyone's facing the front and you're able to position yourself where you can see everyone and everyone can see you and something I spoke about is that idea that years ago I didn't have the choice about where two students sat specifically in my own classroom because the class had 32 and the classroom could fit 30, but the pressure in the school and and the necessity to have this larger class was there at the time. And I'd put this desk right at the front, literally right at the front wall because there was nowhere else to put it in the room. And so the students were literally on top of the, of the whiteboard. And inevitably, when I was given my explanation they had to twist their necks they had to try and turn themselves around and they were very close to the board as well and I suppose I've I've reflected on it and think of it almost like some people like to go to the cinema and sit on the front row and arch their head up and and watch the movie but I couldn't think of anything worse so um, it was just I think taking that into consideration for one and secondly the research identifies this idea of uh, t-zones in a classroom and it's that point that actually and i and i talked about is if it's almost like um premier seats at the odeon like you pay that little bit extra at the odeon sit in these premier seats they're extra comfy it's that idea of do we have sort of like not intentional but do we have unintentional premier seats in our classroom and so whilst rose is advocated as probably the most effective layout, if we do have other layouts for whatever reason, because it's out of our control as a teacher, thinking about, well, where might these T-zones be? And then how can we sort of look to overcome them? And I think that's something that all teachers can take into consideration when they're setting out the classrooms. And then it comes back to the idea that the research, like Black uh, said in 2007, that um, poor seating arrangement can affect learning by up to 50%. That's quite a stark amount. And I thought about it and thought that's quite significant. And I think if I was honest with myself, I thought, well, I want the tables laid out like this because that's how I wanted it. Or I just want a bit of a change this term. I want to mix it up a little bit. I want to have a fresh start and a little bit of a difference. And sometimes I saw my classroom as something that I wanted to ensure I was comfortable, but never really necessarily thought enough about the pupils being comfortable. I think that's an interesting point about the teacher who's in the room all the time thinking about themselves, but not necessarily thinking about the students. And you mentioned these T-zones. Um, is there thinking around which... T- we could have phrase this 
question about type of students we put in the T-zones. Should that be the ones that we need to have their attention the most because they're often the ones that kind of produce unproductive behaviours or are the ones that um, are perhaps the, the lowest attaining? Yeah, it's interesting. So the research, and it was by Marx, um, Furrer and Hartig in 2000, they talked about these T-zones. And they said in their research where if if you had these T-zones in particular with like rows, these were the seats where students would inevitably have greater means of participation in the room and therefore greater performance compared to anyone else seated elsewhere. So I think one of the things as teachers is when you, you got your class and you're looking at where you want to see them and getting to know them as individuals, yeah, you, you might be it might be advantageous to put <clears throat> pupils who might need further attention, scaffold and support in these T-zones potentially. That's definitely something to consider. But something I felt when I read it is that actually probably what we want to do is, is every single seat is a T-zone or every single seat is a premier seat and removes the T-zone so that actually you don't fall in that trap of, of because the research says there's T-zones and these are the premier seats, if you like, that you're always putting students that need the most need in those seats when actually there could be other sort of reasons as to why seat, seated in those positions in the classroom might not benefit them because they may have other additional needs or you might decide actually that they would be better seated with someone who um, could be a lead learner to, to support them or or give them that peer feedback that they might benefit from where you may not always be giving that input. And so me personally, I think actually, when we think about how we lay out a classroom and think about where we sit students, yes, we want to be mindful that we want to sit some students that need extra support, we need verbal feedback, we need reminders, maybe on areas that are more easily accessible for you as a teacher as you're circulating, but equally try and mitigate against the idea of there is T-zones in the room because ultimately every single pupil that walks in your room, they should be sat in a premier seat. They should have that premier seat experience in your classroom. And I think that's something that I'd advocate I love that every child deserves the premier seat experience in your classroom. There's so much to think about in terms of, of seating plans. We could talk for, for a long time on, on the kind of where, where students sit and, and the best position for the whiteboard and so on. But can I stay in within the classroom? You're right that paying attention is a critical cog to enable learning. With this in mind, uh, what, what should we have on our classroom walls when considering our classroom aesthetics? Yeah, I think attention is something that's come at the forefront of research and and discussions in education over the last couple of years. And I think it's crucial, though, because if our pupils are not attending to to what we're explaining, to what uh, their peers are contributing and explaining in terms of their ideas, then they're not going to be learning effectively. And I see almost like um, it's that, it can become a situation where the aesthetics are too noisy and that noise overpowers you as a, as a teacher because overstimul- overstimulation can lead to distraction. And I, I think, I mean, from the research that I read, there's often overstimulated classrooms can affect specific groups of students, but ultimately it can affect everyone. And I think that... Um, just because it, it can have an impact on one particular student doesn't mean that we shouldn't consider it for all. And so something that I, the research says, if you've got these overstimulated classrooms, pupils won't be able to pay attention as well. And John uh, Ratte in 2001, he talked about attention as being more than just noticing incoming, incoming stimuli. So he talked about it being sort of like encompassed with the idea of perceptions balancing multiple perceptions and attaching emotional significance to these perceptions he talked about the greater number of distractions in the room the greater the impact it'll have on our ability to concentrate and so I think it's so true though because even like I was teaching year nine yesterday and I always have my door open my classroom door is always open any time I shut it occasionally if I put a video on because I don't want to disturb anyone. So if I put like a five-minute clip on that I want students to watch, I'll shut the door and reopen it again. 
but people walking past um just teachers going about the normal daily routine and and as soon as they walk past the students attention would drew over to there so you see it all the time and i think no i think even the even the most attentive students will naturally do that we do that as as adults sat in a meeting and, and you some something catches your eye you na- you're naturally going to want to look elsewhere so i think that we don't want clinical walls necessarily but i talk about this idea that if we can reduce those distractions we can help to filter out some of these potential stimuli that might reduce that attention in the classroom and so keeping that front wall clear could be a strategy that may work my front wall is clear now and i've found that it's helped over the last year or so since applying the research and then maybe something at the back of the room that's that's relevant that so for example being a geographer i have like a world map on on the wall and that's i use as well as a as a tool for learning and i think i think it's it's something definitely to consider and and i know that in particular primary classrooms are quite well decorated but and and this is by no means to say to primary teachers oh you've got it wrong because that's not what what i'm saying but i think that it comes back to who who are the displays for what's the so my first questions are what i'd ask teachers what's the display for what's the purpose of it is it actually being used is it actually used as a learning tool or is it there just to make the classroom look pretty and therefore is it for a different audience is it for someone else an external visitor is it, is it to like i say is it to make it look pretty i'd, I'd, I'd ask that question to all teachers that have a classroom and also is it worth the time that you invest in it against what you're getting out of it and like years ago and I talked about it in the book years ago we old school used to have competitions about who could create the best display across across departments when I look back at it and I think what a waste of time I could have spent more time crafting how I'm going to explain something or how I'm going to model it how I'm going to approach it sitting down as departments discussing it and having those curriculum conversations so much more value to doing that we did it this week, just gone. We sat down, we, we talked about a question that we'd set for students in year eight, like an application task. We actually answered it ourselves and we said, well, is it right? Is it, did we approach it the right way? And we critically evaluated it. And I think that for me, that's of greater value to crafting our explanations over creating a display and putting a fancy little crinkle border on it. But that's just that's just from reading research and and ultimately like i say some some teachers may feel actually i want a pretty classroom that's fine if that's but if we know it can affect attention then what can we do to our no certainly i love those those questions you posed of what is the purpose and is it actually being used is a question that i would ask quite a lot because oftentimes you go into a classroom and then you go into that same classroom a year or two later and nothing's changed um so is it worth the time i love that example you gave of you and your team discussing the curriculum and the application of learning and using that time to benefit both your teaching and the students' learning. So thank you for sharing that example. And I do wonder as well, like every year when we get open evenings come round, the seasonal open evenings, it's like a crazy, mad couple of weeks of you need to update your displays, you need to do this. And I just, I get it. I do get it. I get why schools do it. But again, what's the purpose of it? Mm-hmm. Is there better time? Yes, corridor displays, fine. I get those. Yes. But what? Why Why do you want that classroom to look pretty? Yes, look tidy. Yes, look like a, a, a suitable space for learning, i.e. books not strewn everywhere on the floor or um, cupboards overflown. Yes, I get that. But I don't get the time that some schools want teachers to invest in when actually – it probably would be better for open evenings to have conversations around what do we do as a school to develop your child and what will they learn and why will they learn it? Why is it important? How do we, in terms of their character, their leadership education, I think that's a greater value in my mind Mm -hmm. than a crazy two weeks of let's update all our displays and let's spend hours doing it. It's certainly a better use of our time and and really gives 
adherence to this idea of live it, uh, not laminate it, that I've seen quite a few times that really resonates with me. So before we move into the what the kind of the act of teaching, um, kind of a staple in the teaching world is PowerPoint and something else the students can look at and take their attention away. So do PowerPoints create cognitive overload and how do we go about minimising this idea of overload with the students? I think that, and I talk about it, that PowerPoints become like uh, the security blanket for a teacher. It's almost like um, you're not a teacher if you don't have a PowerPoint. And I think when I started at the new school, it was the department, I think they were like, no PowerPoints. It was almost like, oh, I'm about to take, take the right arm from them. But I think it comes back down to what are we doing beforehand to actually talk about what we're explaining, what we're, how we're delivering the content, because we want our lessons to be authentic. So we want our pupils to believe in what we deliver. And I think that if we use PowerPoints and we deliver almost like a script off a PowerPoint and we stick rigid to it, then we can't be those responsive teachers sort of passionately talked about in his book we can't do that because how can you do that because you can't deviate from that powerpoint that you spent hours on um so i think all the research shows that powerpoints actually can be quite cognitively distracting especially with transitions and all fancy slides on them and flashing colors and everything else that you can think of and again comes back to what i said before who is the powerpoint for what's the purpose of it how how is it going to support learning and how are you going to best get across what you want to get across in terms of the knowledge that you want to want to do to deliver and want students to know and in some cases a powerpoint probably may not necessarily help you with that so it's fine to just use your whiteboard it's fine to stand there and explain it and draw it actually it's quite that makes you quite an authentic teacher where you you're sort of like modeling your thinking whilst you're going through the explanation on the board, rather than sticking up um, a series of bullet points that you just recite off the PowerPoint. And the, I suppose it comes back to that conversation, how you support colleagues in your department, how you discuss, how you're going to explain something. And it's why like our meetings every week are curriculum conversations. They're not admin-based. They talk about how we're going to teach this, what's the best way to teach it, do we need this image on the board? Okay, fine, let's put it on the board. But if we've got an image on the board, let's say a map or a photograph or a table, just have that on the board. Like, do, do we need to have that extra information that we can actually explain ourselves? And so I think I'm not saying by any shape of the imagination that PowerPoints aren't a tool that you can use for learning. But I think that's the important bit. It's a tool for learning, not the lesson. And I talk passionately about your the lesson as a teacher mm-hmm. not not the powerpoint but so many times i see powerpoints being the lesson and also i've seen it in other schools i've worked in and i've passionately disagreed with it with senior leaders in in the past to much sort of like disagreement from them that just because you don't have a powerpoint or doesn't mean you haven't planned your lesson and i think that it's for me it's a blinkered type of le- leadership that believes that that teacher that they walk into to go and have a look around and see the learning, that there's no PowerPoint, they mustn't have planned it. And I think that any school leader who insists on a blanket, one-fits-all PowerPoint design with 100,000 different one items on the front slide as students come into a lesson, I'd why? What's the purpose? Why are you doing it? And what benefit do you think that's bringing to the teachers and the pupils? Because with all the research we have now, actually that's not benefiting students. So it's things, it's little things like some schools insisting you've got to have the learning objective, you've got to have the success criteria, you've got to have the keywords, you've got to have the starter activity all on one slide. I just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I don't, why, why, why are you insisting on teachers doing that? What's the purpose? I don't get it. Because ultimately, like for us, we have the open activity we want them to do. So they do that straight away retrieval activity of some sort could be vocab focused it could be open-ended questions it could be um finish off the sentence for something they've done 
it's all steeped in reflections from previous lessons and what's coming up to for the teachers to understand, okay, where are they at? What do I need to do next? And then when they've done that, discuss that, review it, reteach if we need to, if it's important foundation knowledge to move on. And then, okay, so what are we learning today? So then we put the hypothesis on. Hypothesis on one slide. It's just literally the hypothesis. There's no pretty pictures everywhere. It's just the hypothesis. Okay, let's talk about it. And some people might say, oh, your PowerPoints are boring. Okay, but they have a purpose as a tool for learning. And not a single pupil has said to me, I've asked for years, so your PowerPoint's boring? So <laughs> and actually, the colleagues that I work with now, one of them said, he said, it's quite liberating to be able to teach. And that, for me, said that what we're doing is having the right impact. Certainly that example you're given of that managerialism and control over teaching in classrooms um, begs the question of whether they truly understand teaching. And, and what you've said there echoes with a conversation I had with Samuel Elliott, a wonderful book called Asbo Teacher. It's, it's funny and enlightening. And, and he said in that episode that um, he feels most like a teacher when he goes into a lesson armed only with a whiteboard pen and his subject knowledge and questions and he's able to teach the, the students and they leave with more knowledge than when they came in with. And I think that's examples that you give there. And it's, it moves us smoothly on to where I want to go next, Michael, because you've got a wonderful chapter on preparing your pitch. Um, and you begin by discussing subject knowledge. So I think the key here is that subject knowledge. So how important is knowing thy subject? And what can teachers do to ensure their subject knowledge stays up to date? Yeah, and I think all the, all the recent publications like Evidence-based education is great teaching toolkits. You even go back to Rob, Professor Rob Coe's um, original sort of like um, sort of presentation way back where he talked about poor proxies for learning. Subject knowledge is crucial, even and then you go back to the research um, from Shulman who talks about the importance of subject knowledge. And he used, he says that quote, those, and I use at the start of the book, those who can do or those who understand teach. And I think. It's really, really important because if you don't know what you're teaching, then that's going to be obvious. And Ball sort of like did the comment as well that teachers cannot help children learn they themselves or learn things that they themselves do not understand. So it's a crucial cog. And I think that's why we have those curriculum conversations. So as geographers, I know that because my degree is uh, physical geography that was my focus because that's what we tend that's what happens with geographers and i've got colleagues in the department who are human geographers i know full well that certain colleagues will have certain expertise that i don't have and actually even though i might be a lead out in the school i might be a senior leader it's it's fine to to share that vulnerability as a leader and actually say Do you know what i don't know this well enough you know this better than me because X, Y, and Z, you're, you've done, you, you've gone down that niche of, of the part of the subject. So actually embracing that member of staff and empowering them to support the team in, in how to best approach it is really, really important. And accepting that as a teacher, I think, is the first step. You don't know everything. And once you accept that, you can then say, right, where, where are my own gaps that mean that I can work on closing those gaps and helping to to craft my explanations and my models. So when I come to teach it, I know what I'm teaching so I can help the students in front of me learn as best as I can. And I think that's important. And it's also accepting what Shulman talked about in terms of teaching is complex. So I added in the book that little graphic of the, um, the, the, the sort of seven different aspects of what teachers need to know, like the content knowledge they're teaching, how best to approach it, the pedagogical knowledge, um, the curriculum knowledge, knowledge of what's going on around the world in terms of education at the moment, and then even knowledge of the learners. So, so complex. And I think that if we believe, and it's something that Dylan Williams talked about, didn't he? That idea that as teachers, we, we're continually improving and, and we should believe in that and not see ourselves as a finished article as soon as we get into the classroom. So I think investing time and creating and accepting and embracing vulnerabilities teachers in schools and, and leaders allowing 
that to happen is important, it's vital, because if we, if we believe that every teacher ha- um, can still improve, then actually it creates the right culture to promote those conversations. That if it's seen as a closed book, you're a teacher, so you should be able to teach this. You're a geographer, so why can't you teach this? I think that's, it becomes quite toxic then. It certainly does. So how can teachers, you, I love what you mentioned there about leaning on your colleagues and your example between physical geographers and human geographers. So what else can teachers do to bone up on their, their subject knowledge? What recommendations could you give? Yeah, so we talk about the idea of practising explanations and models in, in, in department meetings, so actually delivering that. Okay, so we're, we're I don't know, we're doing, we're doing something about um, climate change, we're going to look at the natural cause of climate change, eccentricity, axle tilt, recession. We're going to look at those components. Okay, so how can we best approach this? Okay, so oh, I delivered it like this uh, last time. So then showing it, modeling it, discussing it, unpacking it. I think that's really, really important. That's one way. And then I think that using um, subject associations and um, looking at those and how you can tap into those literatures that are linked to your subject, I think they're really important as well. I think that there's lots out there with universities as well, where they do like uh, lectures and and um, sort of like knowledge boosters or top ups for teachers. I think it's important to spend time doing that as well. So I think there's loads of ways that we can do it. And I think also it's tapping into other subjects. So there might be some aspects of your subject where you think actually. There's so many crossovers, especially like with my subject, geography and history and geography and uh, science. Um, how does science approach this in terms of like relation to, say, vegetation and plants? How do they approach it? Uh, do they approach it a different way? Tapping into their expertise, getting the scientists to come into the geography department meeting and say, right, teaching this, like, how have you approached it? And I think all of that comes back to that promotion of curriculum conversations in schools and saying actually those subjects aren't silos they aren't separate mm-hmm. students are going through this um curriculum as a broad school curriculum every day there's loads of crossovers and actually seeing it as something that you can tap into from other colleagues i think is really important This episode of Becoming Educated has been supported by UpLearn. UpLearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools improve student grades and helps reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Art Schools, use UpLearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flip learning tool. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote Becoming Educated for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot UK I love that, kind of that um, cross-curricular conversations that are, that are so powerful and we can learn so much from colleagues in different areas in my recent podcast and with Dr. Liam Printer, we spoke about what we can learn from our primary college as well and how they do things and shape things. We can learn so much from each other. And, and uh, what you mentioned there about um, Lee Shulman recognising the, the complexity of teaching and then Dylan William, this idea of continually improving, it brings me back to a conversation I had with Josh Goodrich on the podcast because he starts off one of his blogs with a wonderful quote. And if you don't mind me sharing it, I'd love to share it again because I think it's just so fantastic from Dylan William. And he says that, this job you're doing is so hard that one lifetime isn't enough to master it. So every single one of you needs to accept the commitment to carry on improving our practice until we retire or die. That is the deal. <laughs> That's such a wonderful, wonderful quote. I mean, it obviously has quite a, um, eh, what's the word? Eh. Haunting, I think. Yeah, <laughs> certainly one, but it's, it's an interesting one. It goes back to what you were, you were saying there. So thank you for that. Um, kind of advice to colleagues there so I think that one of practicing our explanations with our, in our subject teams is, is such a fascinating one and something that, that I would love in my, in my own role more time to be able to do and unpick their thinking so you've mentioned curriculum conversations a few times so let's let's stick there for a little bit um, and thinking about our curriculum you're right um, and share a bit 
this idea of pitching them up to create rigor and challenge that activates deep level thinking. How do we do that? Yeah, so there's something Mary Meyer talked about previously, and I mentioned Mary in the book about delivering lessons that are above their pay grade. And uh, it links into the work from Sean, um, Alison and Andy Farvey in their book about uh, making every lesson count. You want students to go into the struggle zone, not the panic zone or the coast zone, or you want them in the struggle zone so that they're act- actively thinking. And I think that a lot of the time, some schools and teachers and leaders think that that means when you pitch it up and make it challenging, that actually that means like key stage three, you bring GCSE curriculum into it or uh, A-level, um, GCSE, sorry, you bring A-level into it. And that's, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. You've got, almost got the wrong lens on it there because I think that once you've looked at your curriculum and you looked at your different um, composites that you want to achieve uh, along the way and then you look at the different components of knowledge that you want students to have in order to achieve those composites, you can then decide, okay, how can I, how can I pitch this explanation up or what can I do to extend it? Doesn't mean, oh, they're in year eight, so I'm going to give them a to what extent question to do because that's what they'll do at GCSE. And we only talked about that where we said, what can, what can we do to build the knowledge that we want them to have in terms of this component of the curriculum? To help achieve the composite so i think it's it's difficult but i think that that's why curriculum conversations are really important because it's not about having a gift a group of gifted and talented students who get extra work or it's not about having bronze silver gold targets because that again doesn't work or it's not about having um where you go back to the whole bloom's taxonomy Again, there's so many issues with that when you look at it just at face value. It's not about that. So, for example, like when when we're teaching something about, like we've been teaching, give you an example for year nine, we, we've currently been teaching about tectonic hazards. And we talked about, well, this is what we've taught. This is how we've taught this for years. So we, we teach an aspect which is about why do people live in hazardous zones? One of the components of that is fertile soils. Like when you're near a fertile, so crop yields are um, are higher, and therefore farmers will take that risk because they'll produce greater crops. And that's how we've taught it for years, and and not taught it differently. And so we discussed a few weeks ago before we taught it. Well, what can we do? It's going to increase and upgrade the the curriculum, this part of the curriculum, this component. And so we said, well. Why don't we unpack actually what it means? Like why are the soils so fertile? Because we don't talk about that all. Like we don't really explain that. So actually, we, we did a bit of research a little bit further, and we thought, right, well, we can let's teach them about alophane, which is like a mineral that's within um, when the volcanoes erupt, and it and it's what is layered on the soil as a result. And then we unpack that, and so we taught that, and again. I'm sure there could be situations where some people would say, oh, can I teach that to the top set, if you like, the top students in year nine? But actually, I taught it to what you would see as some low prior attainers last week. And so what did I do differently? Well, we discussed how we could scaffold it so that every student in year nine who did geography last week could access it and understand it and so that's just one little snippet of an example about how we've upgraded our curriculum without it being let's talk about what we do at GCSE for key stage three. So we've explored what a classroom looks like a classroom layout where students are sitting what the students are looking at in terms of the PowerPoint and then we've got our subject knowledge and our curriculum in place so we're now going to dive back into the classroom and, and consider the act of Act and craft of teaching here. So when delivering our pitch, you begin by discussing classroom culture. So can I ask you, Michael, how do teachers build a scholarly culture in their classroom? And does that begin with the meet and greet? I think so. I think everything's about the start of the lesson. I think um, if we don't get the start right, then everything else just falls apart, I think. And culture is 
uh, it's difficult to um, really sort of like contextualize what it actually means. And sometimes, actually, when you talk about culture, you can't always pinpoint why culture in a school is so strong and why there's such a strong culture. But it, you just feel it. You can it, you feel it. You breathe it. You can see it. And I think it comes down to what I talked about. Picked out some of the research about what um, Bridewell Mitchell and and in terms of key principles underpin culture and that idea of fundamental beliefs, assumptions, shared values, norms, patterns and behaviours and tangible evidence. And I think the norms and shared values are really important, patterns and behaviours. So start the lesson, the norm is that you greet greet your class, really sort of that positive greet. You're not checking your emails or trying to, to do something else in between, but it's straight away greet class. But actually... It's and we do this a lot. It's about how can you create um, sort of student leadership in your classroom. So every lesson, start of every lesson, books are in piles ready to go by the door. My students now know that as soon as they come in, I'll, I'll greet them outside the corridor. So I'm just keeping an eye on the corridor, making sure the corridors are safe, and making sure pupils are transitioning uh, in in the right way. The pupils come in, two pupils give the books out. Don't even have to ask them. They get their equipment out. Stood behind the desk. We're all ready. One student will act as a lead, uh, um, a greeter, and the um, will lead the class. and And then they're down. The activity's ready to go at the start. The retrieval activity. They they get on with it. And in that meantime, that means as a teacher, I can make sure the corridors are safe. Everyone's transitioned well down the corridor. I can get into the classroom, and it's just a smooth start to the lesson because in all the schools that I've worked at and don't get me wrong the silent corridors are something up for debate but we have silent corridors and I've worked in schools where there hasn't been silent corridors and in every school I've worked at where there hasn't been silent corridors apart from one students have brought the baggage from the corridor into the lesson and then what you're doing as a teacher is you're having to sort of like play the game of whack-a-mole to get that gone in order for you to start teaching. And sometimes that that can create a negative start to a lesson and an issue that's been from one lesson to another or an issue that's occurred or unfolded in a corridor becomes part of your lesson. And that's some and I think sometimes as a teacher it must be so dispiriting to, to have that happen you've planned that lesson everything's ready to go you, you you can't wait to deliver it and then you've got this issue that's unfolding in your room that wasn't actually an issue in your room and I think sometimes that's where pupil teacher relationships can break down especially beginning the lessons because teachers get frustrated um, students are frustrated from what's happening in the corridor rightly so so how can you get removed that well create a norm create those patterns and behaviours that actually most transition between lessons are smooth so that the start of your lesson is as scholarly as you can have it. And why wouldn't you want that? And I think as a teacher, you can promote that. And I did promote that at my last school, but lots of the teachers didn't. And so it was a battlefield. It was just me and a few others trying really hard. One of the reasons why I left and I was open and honest with the school why I left because there's not the culture there. But now the school I'm at now, the culture's strong. Every teacher's doing it. It's it's great. Every teacher at the change lessons, I'm in the humanities corridor. We've got geography, history, modern foreign languages. We're all stood on the corridor every side of every lesson, change of lessons. Everyone's greeting students, there's smiles, there's there's a nice atmosphere. And it's just a nice way to start a lesson. And so <clears throat> why wouldn't you want that? I don't understand why you wouldn't. I wholeheartedly agree that scholarly start, the meet and greet. And, and I love your examples of the students knowing exactly what to do because those norms and habits and routines have, have been deeply embedded. So the, the lesson, the, the students are psychologically prepared for a scholarly lesson even before they enter your room because they know the procedures and what's going to happen. So thinking about then moving into our delivery of our explanations, you, you share a little bit about Aristotle. So how can Aristotle help us use rhetoric devices to deliver authentic and credible explanations. Yeah, I think, again, it comes back to what we said earlier on. To be authentic, you need to know what you're teaching and have that credibility. You need to know what you're teaching. And I I use the example of the 
Curry's representative PC. Well, do you go and buy a TV or whatever else you're going to Curry's for? You, you assume when you're about to ask that that Curry's um, worker that they know about the TV. And as soon as they don't, that then it breaks down and you just don't want to buy it. Um, and that's because the expertise of what you're expecting from that salesperson just isn't there. And I suppose that's why it's really important. And Aristotle's um, sort of like devices really help us to unpack well, what can we do to, to support teachers and ourselves as teachers ourselves um, to actually improve the, the authenticity and credibility of our um, explanations in the classroom. And I think it's really, really crucial. And I think, oh, you come back to the, the first device about ethos and his first device about ethos. How can you convince you are a credible teacher and worth listening to? And again, if you, if you practice your explanations, you know what you're teaching, you'll convince them easily. But if you're stood there unsure and you're stuttering with your explanation because, I don't know, you're in a school where you haven't been able to sit, sit down as a team and someone else has created the PowerPoint, so it's easier for you to get that PowerPoint and just deliver that lesson. If you're going to mm-hmm. deliver it, there's definitely a difference between delivering a lesson and, and actually teaching a lesson. And I think there's a crucial difference between delivering and teaching. And so I think, how can you make yourself credible and worth listening to? You you make it like you know what you're talking about. You motivate the students. You you show that some things are not impossible. You turn the, what they believe might be impossible to into possible. And also, I think as teachers, like Aristotle talked about as well, is that as teachers, the art of persuasion is a crucial cog into teaching. And so, like any successful explanation, you'll need to be using the art of persuasion. And also, it's that belief that they can do it irrespective. Like I, I had a student this week and she lacked belief and, and she said, but sir, I can't do it. I said, why? said, I can't do it. I said, you can, but I can't. And what she wanted was me to give her the answers. That's what she wanted. It's not that she couldn't do it. She just want, it was easier to get an answer from me, but because I wouldn't give it to her um, and she's used to that, she finds that quite, quite challenging. And so then we unpack it. Well, why can't you do it? Tell me why you can't do it. Let's break it down. Let's talk about it. And I also talk about this idea of credibility. Um, letting them off so sometimes it's easy as a teacher to let them off so for example Dan brought the planner in but the the planner is part of being ready for learning in the school so you let them off all you're doing is disadvantaging them you're not doing them any favors and you're not doing yourself any favors because once you let one off everyone else is like oh get away with this so I think that's really important as well in building your sort of ethos is that you don't like when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And that's really important. And like, it's, and it doesn't have to be done in a horrible way either. Mm. So you say, you say to pupils, okay, so you've got all my pupils now every week, they have, I write it on the board, every group on the, on the whiteboard and section of the whiteboard, what the homework is when it's due in. And I always say to them, right, this is your homework. Let's, I'll write it down for you. So I'm going to model what I want you to write in your planner. So they'll write it in a planner. I want you to show me you've written it in your planner because I want to make them accountable. So just show me your planner so I can see you've written it in. I do that every lesson, so now they just do it automatically. It's become a habit. I don't have to check it as often anymore. And then I'll say, right, it's due in this date. And just a reminder, if you don't hand it in on time, you don't meet the deadline, you know that you'll stay after school that day and you'll have to complete it then. And I don't waver that because once they do, then every single student Mm-hmm. or more students will start it's like dominoes isn't it more students will start saying right i don't have to do it anymore because so there's not checking it and i don't do it horribly i just say this is what i expect and if this doesn't happen th- this will obviously be the the sanction and so i think that's really important in terms of like that part of ethos because like i say once once they don't see you a credible adult then you'll lose it and yeah, I just think like I've unpicked it in terms of trust, dynamism, competence, immediacy. Because if they don't see you as com- having uh, as a competent teacher, like if you're fratting around trying to, it's just I also think it's tiredness as well. That, that's a part of it as well. Like 
walk into a classroom and it's a messy classroom, what does it say about you as a teacher? About your messy teacher? Like it's just it's I suppose for me, it's attention to detail. I had okay. to talk about it as well. If the teacher's not perceived as credible, the students just turn off. Certainly it's that sweat and the small stuff. And I love the the application of of thinking from thousands of years ago being applied now kind of shows that, that despite the advances in, in technologies as human beings and our own cognitive structure, it isn't, hasn't changed that much over time. So thank you for sharing that. I love that and the examples you gave. But the examples you gave, not to like showing how, how much you care about the students and how much you want them to succeed. So thank you for that. Um, let's go on back into our explanations and how we're delivering our explanations. So how important is, is precision in our explanation and how do we carefully align them to learned intentions, managing prior knowledge and managing student attention? Yeah, I think that um, I talked about a history teacher that I had who used to tell lots of stories, but that's all he ever did in a lesson. He just told stories. He never did anything. And um, whilst whilst he probably at the time thought, this is great, like got history next and says just going to tell us a lesson about whatever he tells us about one of those wacky stories. And uh, we don't actually write anything down. This is brilliant. But then are we actually learning anything? And equally, you can... I suppose sometimes you can do an explanation that's too short, too quick, and then they're not with you. So I think you have to find that happy medium. And I think, that again, I don't think there's any sort of like silver bullet to say like your explanation should be X amount of minutes. But I think there is a discussion to have, how can you make it as precise as possible? How can you get to the point? And I use the example of like if you've got a friend who likes to tell stories, they literally tell you everything that, that happened every minute, second of that story. And actually, they've gone around the houses, as they say, and they could have got straight to the point. So I think that's really important. I think also sometimes, like um, Tom Sherrington and Ollie Cav talk about and phrase it's going off piste. Mm-hmm. And I think you can go off piste, but I think sometimes you go off piste too much. And then you completely lose what was your original explanation and what you wanted them to know. And therefore, it's that fine balance between delivering something that's razor sharp, students understanding it, but also knowing when actually there's a moment in that lesson where you can go off piste for a little bit. And it doesn't mean like, like, so if you deliver that explanation, you got it to the point. Okay. So you want to do something with that. And someone mentions something, someone says something, you think that actually that would be good. So you say, right, Tom, just pause that thought for a minute. We'll come back to it. But at this moment in time, I just want you to write this down now. Or just want you to do this for a couple of minutes and then can come back to what Tom asked then, because actually that's really important. So you're not dis- dismissing that by any means of the imagination, but you know that that chunk of knowledge you've delivered, if you don't get them to do something with that there and then, it could affect that foundation you're trying to build for the next step, whether it's in the lesson or next step in the following lesson along the curriculum. So actually you acknowledge that you're not trying to stifle that um, curiosity you're just saying can you let's pause there for a minute so i'm hold that for we'll come back to this i like it but i just want you i want everyone to do this first and so i think it's just finding ways to deliver explanations that are sharp precise that don't not or endless waffle so actually everything you wanted to say could have been delivered in five minutes but you take 20 minutes and so you get i suppose it's like being at some cpd sessions isn't it or you get completely lost and you're like, I don't know what they were talking about. You start drifting up and sometimes you can see it in the students' faces, the daydreaming because you just lost them. So I think it's, I mean, I mentioned here um, that idea that we're only able to process, we know cognitive from cognitive sciences, like seven different elements at any one time, and we can lose it within 30 seconds. So if we go off piste too much, we might lose what we would originally set for them to explain so i think we have to find a happy medium as teachers but chunking it in bite-sized chunks not stifling that curiosity by saying acknowledging it but then you'll come back to it but then making sure you come back to it and i think that's really important as well sometimes even if you say oh tom just pause there if you don't come back to it tom's like well i'm not gonna bother next time Certainly, you've lost you've lost Tom for that, and it goes back to what you mentioned about the the credibility and so on from the learning from Aristotle. And we're going to st- I want to kind of stick with this idea of story because I love what you're saying about being sharp and precise in your explanations, and it marries up beautifully what you spoke about with the work you do with your curriculum teams, and then pl- planning out some explanations and exploring subject knowledge. 
But Daniel William notes that stories are psychologically privileged. So how should we employ them in the classroom? Yeah, stories are great. And I think everyone's, I think as a teacher, you're telling the story all the time, every lesson, you're telling the story of your curriculum. And therefore, how you tell the story is should be something that you should really sort of like practice and consider. Like Daniel William talked about that idea that it's clear that storytelling may be considered fa- foundational to the teaching profession. And so I talk about this idea of um, some of the things that William talked about, the idea that um, when you're telling those stories, it brings different benefits like engagement, inspiration, motivation, empathy, connection. So it could be something like you, you tell it, like for me, for example, um, I'll again come back to what I was teaching last week with Year Nine, which is about um, living in hazardous zones. One of the one of the components is that one of the reasons why people live in hazardous zones is because of tourism opportunities. And I actually talked about and added into my explanation the story of when I went to Mount Etna, went up on the on the the buggies and went up the side of Mount Etna. And so it's not it's not saying it has to be like a a story in terms of like a, a Disney film or, or whatever else. It can be a story that's linked to what your own experience is. And I think they're really powerful because they bring to life what um bring to life about your subject, what you want them to know, but also it's relatable. I think that's really important stories. The idea becomes relatable and you're giving them specific examples that you can link. And I also think using pupils as a means of gripping stories as well because pupils will have stories to tell in the lesson like they'll say oh yeah i did that so i went there or okay well tell us a little bit more about it then jasmine when you went there what was it like and i think that it's really really good because it's it's a powerful tool as well for motivation it's a powerful tool for inspiring because other people's be like actually yeah like i'd like to go there or i'd like to do that or actually i remember this and i remember that so I think they are really powerful. And I think like when you look at the research and, and what William talked about, they have a role in the classroom. And no matter what subject you do in the like telling a story linked to your subject can have a big influence. And I talked about other opportunities like um when you're starting a new topic, setting the scene, you can tell a story there. I talk about the idea of if you're reading the story, don't rush through it. Um, take your time for that, some reflection. Um, I talk about the idea of snippets of stories. When we even if we use external stories, we maybe give them too much at any one time using snippets of it, encouraging them to read outside of the of the um, subject. So we have little knowledge checkers. So part of our homework strategy is they might go and read a story that's linked, and the story could be an article someone sharing an experience that they've had and so if that's something that you can really sort of tap into in your lessons and also have your lessons as a story so i mentioned that one of the points of being oh do you remember in last in last lesson we were doing this and so at the end at the start of every lesson we have our journey now learning journeys and maps have come under a hard debate and um i haven't finished writing a blog about it but some people think curriculum maps and so I actually look at it from a, a learning journey. We have it on the board every lesson, but it tells the story of what they're learning. And, and I find I found it really powerful. Um, so it's not your snake curriculum map that people are so sort of like feel, feel this there's a big debate between the two, but this is like a small little journey of a chunk of what they're learning. But then I say, Oh, do you remember last lesson we were working on this? And now we're moving on to this, this lesson. And the next couple of lessons, we're moving on to this. And can you see how it all fits together? Just creating your, your subject as one big story. Um, I do feel that that is really beneficial. Yeah, I love that idea. And, and uh, I love that the couple of the ideas there of, of kind of using the students to tell stories, especially in subjects like geography. If you're talking about certain places and the students being there, I can see that being so powerful to share their experiences. And I love the idea of the homework strategy to, to read around the subject and read. Um, kind of stories and so on kind of it, it will add to if you've got regular homework whether kind of quizzing or um, answering questions just adding in that story here and there it adds variety to that homework and I, and I love that it kind of builds and deepens their learning there so thank you and um, 
conscious of time, Michael, I've taken up so much of your, your Saturday morning <laughs> so far. Um, so I'm going to close the um, interview section with one more question, if I may, before we move on to the quick fire round. And what I want to ask you, Michael, is what do you think are the key takeaways for listeners to help them hit the sweet spot with their explanations and modelling? I think crucial is accepting that vulnerability as a teacher, accepting that actually you, you've still got lots to learn and that's fine. That's, that's all part of being a teacher. I think let go of that security blanket of the PowerPoint. Embrace yourself as a teacher. Be like see you as the lesson not the powerpoint and promote that scholarly culture in your room because if you can get that right then those scholarly habits will build and you build those habits it will make your explanations even more sort of effective and you'll feel as a teacher that all that effort that time that you spent preparing actually will is will, will, will actually will have the impact that you want it to have Right. Thank you so much. Some great tips for teachers there. And before we move on to the quick fire round, Michael, can you please share with listeners where they can um, contact you, uh, hear more from you, and where, of course, they can buy your books? Yes, yeah, so obviously you can follow me on Twitter as normal, so at M underscore Charles. And um, I've been doing lots of CPD for schools and um, university providers, so I'm always happy to support where I can. And then obviously you can get get the book from John Cat. John Cat does some really good book orders, uh, discounts for schools if they're working on like this aspect of pedagogy and they want say a department to have a copy or they want everyone to have a copy and um, get it from John Cat directly or of course the uh, the infamous Amazon. Uh, you can get it from there as well. Certainly, and I certainly encourage uh, people to buy and read your books. Um, I've read all three so far, and they're they're just so, so wonderful. Today we explored the sweet spot and I'm thoroughly looking forward to reading your collaboration with David Goodwin and of course your your book on questioning. So we're now on to the quick fire round, three questions that I ask every guest and, and I'm always fascinated to hear um, people's thoughts and refl- reflections on these. So my first question to you Michael is what are you reading currently? So I have been reading two books, Atomic Habits and uh, High Performance. Is that the High Performance podcast book? Yeah, yeah, with Jake Comfrey and uh, Damon Hughes. I, I love that. So much gold in there. So thank you for sharing that. Second question is, what is your own current professional development focus? So mine is around what we've talked about, which is upgrading the curriculum, but not upgrading it as in what we talked about, which is shifting, maybe thinking it, looking at it from a different lens in terms of what's that next layer of knowledge rather than what's that next expectation if they were in GCSE or ALO. Thank you so much. And my final question to you, Michael, is what do you love most about being a teacher? Such a difficult question because um, there's so many things. But I think, I think, especially with new students, when despite, I mean, sometimes I think because I'm probably a bit of a, maybe students see me a bit of a stickler for rules, but I think when they actually, when when parents actually say to me, and I don't always realise it when parents say, do you know what? They really appreciate what you do for them. I think that's the most, it just, it's just a great feeling to know that you're making a difference. And even though sometimes you think some students don't necessarily agree with you or don't necessarily like what you do, they deep down uh, appreciate it. Certainly, that's a wonderful, wonderful reflection. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving up your time on this uh, very windy here Saturday morning to share your thoughts about your book, The Sweet Spot, Explaining and Modelling with Precision. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. This episode of Becoming Educated has been supported by Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools improve student grades and helps reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Art Schools, use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flipped learning tool. 
Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote Becoming Educated for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk. U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening to Becoming Educated. Before you go, can I ask for a few things that will only take a minute? I'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag becomingeducated and tag me on Twitter at DN Leslie. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth.